0: Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. I'm David Alt, and you're listening to The Wicked Library. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. What triggers fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation are under your control. Welcome to The Darkness In Between, our interseasonal entertainment as we are hard at work on Season 11. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. There are only a few of these episodes left before we take off into Season 11, a season of sci-fi-themed horror that we're excited to launch. A big thank you to those of you who took the time to rate the show five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your reviews help others find the show, and of course, we love hearing from you. A sincere thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. Our authors and everyone involved in making the show thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the wicked library, and we really do rely on this support to help us pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. We don't believe any of them should work for free. In addition to knowing that you're a part of making this show possible, you also get rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support, even more. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Lastly, if you don't know already, we now post a weekly book review and recommendation column to the wickedlibrary.com The column is called Fully Booked with Brianna Morgan, and in line with our mission, you'll find reviews with a strong focus on indie and small press horror fiction. There are five reviews to check out as of this episode, and more to come. Head to thewickedlibrary.com forward slash booked to check them out and watch our Twitter feed at Wicked Library for notices when new reviews post each week. Today's dark tale, The Pelt by Christy Nogle, is told by Mary Murphy. Now, without further ado... Let's get wicked.
1: When my husband first bought me the mansion, I'll admit I was lost for a time. I slept hard on the sofa and woke coated in sour sweat. My belly bloated and rumbled, then drove me ravenous to the phone to order something meaty. When my feet got sticky, I ordered rugs. I didn't think of cleaning, but of buying things to cover the filth. And in my deeper mind, I was trying to work out what more I could buy, so that the house would be a home, and reasonable, and tasteful, so that everyone else could see how I loved it, and why. That's the space I was in, poor soul. When my husband bought me the mansion. I know how it sounds. But this house was cheap. Cheap. Cheap because the hill view burned away. The real estate agent said it would be back to green in a year or two. But she and I and my husband laughed and laughed when she said that. I remember we stood in some back part of the house that looked out through all of the front porches and all of the back porches and somehow also gave a view of the stairs. A white-tiled space smelling of lavender and mildew and echoing with our manic laughter, which gave it all a slipping, circling carousel feel. The neighbors who could afford to do so moved after the burn. The ones who couldn't afford to, older couples. They stayed inside growing ever more bitter about the loss as the new people trickled in. Large families that started with sectionals and wide-curved TVs and just kept bringing more and more mobster-looking furniture from Costco, and having grinning brown boxes delivered. They didn't need a view because they had all the wonderland inside, I suppose. But no, a house like this one doesn't need a view. It's miles away the best on the street. I know, never buy the best one on the street. But that's if you're thinking of money this house would be something even if it were parked next to a smoke-belching factory or a pig facility. But here, here there's just no view, and the lawns are a little bit brown, or really more of a gray. It's all kind of gray outside, whatever the weather, come to think of it, but that's all that's wrong. Well, why did your husband buy you a mansion? When he came into a little money, I thought he'd want to spend it on Europe but it turned out he wanted to spend it on getting me out on my own. Who could blame him? I was a mess. I remember all the feelings swelling inside me when we sat in the truck after he said yes, that I could have it. Just a thrill of feeling, so loud. I saw him speaking, but didn't catch his words. Claire, what did I say? He said. Furniture the house? I said. What an odd way of putting it. Like to people something. I knew it must be how one said it, but it didn't sound right. Within reason. That's the important part. I will pay to furnish this house within reason. The doorbell? I wrestled my way up from the sinking couch. Unlocked the first door and the second door and the third. Gray light hit me hard. A barrel-bellied man on the step said, Delivery! Out in the street idled a flatbed truck with an enormous roll of something on it. A roll like carpet, but too thick and bouncy to be carpet. Beyond the truck, neighbors brought their heads out of their cargo areas to look at me. A roll of something springy like pancake appears in the street, but they stare past it to me because they never see me. Wrong house, I said. But the man beckoned me out, pointed to numbers on the house and numbers on the sheet. He said they matched, and I couldn't argue. The truck was already backed in, young workmen already unrolling the roll. I did have a dim recall of ordering a red, fluffy bath mat and flat green kitchen rug. The bone screen was so small, though and my eyes were getting old. The color hit me, a red-like orange and pink and brown, so much color, so loud. The workmen were still unrolling it, and kept unrolling. I caught that the fur lightened at the tips like split ends. The pelt, then, of an Elmo who lived too hard and had too many home perms. I still thought it was a rug. It's awfully Max and Betty, I said. And when the man was blank, I said, I mean lurid, tacky. It'll have to go back. You think? Said the barrel man. I was outside for the first time in who knows when. I even came off the step to pull up on the edge of this thing. It was so light I thought again of Pancake, five or six inches thick with the base a whorl of fibers and dry white clay flaking off of them, and seeds, small black seeds stuck to my palm. A young man took my corner from me and guided me away so his partner could get it nailed to the ground. Two more men were still unrolling the other end. It was going to span the entire yard. I can't have this, I said. It was definitely Maxim Betty. And more importantly, it was not what I'd ordered. Or maybe it was, and I'd failed to take down the dimensions. Or I didn't deserve something like this. Maybe that's what I thought. Whatever, it was wrong. But the red carpet was over the grass now. It was the grass. And the young men were getting back in the truck. It looks great. So eco-friendly, too. Good choice, said the barrel man. He put a rough hand on my shoulder and lingered on his next words. I knew someone had told him to say it. It gives a place a real autumnal feel. It was the right word. That thing cast a light that made me feel cool and wakeful for a change. Like fall. Like going back to school. The promise of industry, something occult at the back of it. The man's face was close and smiling. All dark, stubbled like a cartoon husband. All of a sudden I wanted him to come inside. For a minute, I said. Touched his shoulder. He backed away. Before it was over, we had some hard words. My husband had done this to me, or he had done this for me. I remembered it both ways, and was not sure which was true, or if either was. Each memory was also a projection into the future, like this. Possibility number one. One year in the future. I will be tan and positively gristling with muscle in a black sheath, holding a glass of wine in Europe. My hair will feather better than it has ever feathered. I won't hate wine anymore. I'll love it, even though I still don't know nearly as much about it as my husband does. Someone asks about me, and my first impulse is to say I was lost for a time. But my husband pulls close and begins a story of my renovation project, and how in fact the view did regreen ahead of schedule, and I made some lofty connections through blogging about my heroic renovation, and became some kind of fabulous interior designer or remodeler, or whatever. The past for this future is an excited conversation we had in the truck after our first tour of the house. Possibility number two. One year in the future, I am still sleeping on this sofa. The past for this future is me hyperventilating, crying snot into the sofa the moment his truck backed out of the driveway. Your husband's truck? or the barrel-bellied delivery driver's truck. Both. Anyone could see which story was true. And I'd lied to myself when I thought I remembered some thrill of feeling. I didn't remember feeling. Five to seven bedroom suites unfolded somewhere upstairs. Extra bedrooms needed in case my daughters came. When Mary came, though, I stood inside the door of the first porch and said anything I could to make her leave. All the time I was thinking it was not possible I had once been so overcome with feeling to disobey my parents and take all the other harrowing steps to make her, have her, keep her. I wasn't that person. My husband didn't set me free, hoping I'd come back stronger. He threw me away because he couldn't suffer my hatred and lethargy anymore. I heard his mocking voice. Oh, the world is ending. Oh! It was true I'd been in a low rage over things I wouldn't or couldn't change. I wouldn't make any move. So he moved me. What was he inside of the house like? I'm not picturing it. Tall white rooms with complicated windows and fireplaces. Rooms smelling of plaster and mice. More rooms peopled with ghosts. Ghosts of Christmas parties past and future. Dinner parties. School projects done at the table. So much baking and rushing around before work. Painting and cleaning and burnishing. Rooms furnitured with vague and see-through wardrobes, carved and scrolled in gone-gray wood. Rooms furnitured with canopied beds and tapestries and cities of silver-edged photographs on console tables that were not there. The sound of it all drove me to the drawing room or parlor or whatever. The morning room? The front room? Anyway right inside the porches where I had my sofa. The ghost kept me there trapped and static, a little bug in amber. But with the arrival of all that autumnal red, I decided that memories and pre-living were what had kept me on the sofa. From that time on, I resolved to live in the moment. I stood before the first porch, looking through the second porch and third to the neighbor's houses beyond. And the lawn a red rectangle 100 feet wide by 75 deep. No, the measurements are redmints too of the past. They're not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing the red line of the lawn. No, I do not see a red line. I see white verticals overlapping thinner gray verticals, overlapping thinner darker verticals, That's what the porches come to from this angle. White squares and rectangles up high for the sky. A mess of gray shapes for neighbors' bushes and lawns and the street. Red rectangles lower down for the beautiful new pelt. I isolate one of the shapes and look at it alone. A square of sunset cloud. Very satisfying. I looked and looked. Who knew how long? I felt some little thrill, or thought I did. That night I had my first dream of the house. It was a stupid dream, all told. Instead of three porches, there were endless porches, and me racing to lock all of the French doors on each of them, because some big, terrible thing was coming. I hurried up the stairway, which went on longer than any stairway could. And then the steps became vestigial steps that smooth to nothing, so that I climbed a steep ramp that became a complete vertical, and I clawed and gnawed at the carpet until I crested onto the landing. Someone waited for me back in a softly lit bedroom, asked sleepily if I'd locked the doors. When I woke, I cried. Just briefly. But I cried because he wasn't there. And on a sunny afternoon when Audrey brought her baby, I didn't stand inside the door. I went out the back and came around. So she'd think I'd been working outside. I didn't cast a glance toward the pool on my way. I greeted her warmly as I could. We sat cross legged and she admired how the lawn cast pink light over the porches, balconies, and turrets, so that even though the clapboard siding was patched in many shades of white and gray, and flaking, and powdery dry, it looked carved of pink stone like a princess house in a dream. The baby grasped the lawn in his fists and made big eyes at us. Audrey laughed and said, He's like... This is a thing? I wiped his silky drool into the fibers and felt something. The rains come at night. I lay on the sofa imagining ponds in the lawn fur, shatters of golden brown leaves, mud in short, a big mess I won't have the energy to clean. But it isn't like that in the morning. The lawn feels soft and dry when I touch it gingerly like wet paint can feel dry when you're gentle. When I pad across barefoot, I squish down deep. I leave pink footprints on the porch boards. The rains do not stop soon. The street goes grayer than ever before, with a low dark ceiling overhead. I simply watch from the step and do not think or judge. Silver light comes, and then white a pink rainbow appears. Neighbors come back from work, eager for their mail. They shuffle it before their faces and do not bother to look in my direction. My skin dries and warms and finally begins to feel vexed. And up from the carpet come pale cordyceps mushrooms, little segmented vines with spiked flower buds, soft little worms. When the air cools at night, it's just enough to freeze around the ghosts in the swimming pool. I can't keep myself from standing at the edge to see the shards of ice build around their channels. A man and a woman, I think, swimming precise laps. The edges of the channels go slushy. And if I bend down close, I can sometimes see the shape of an elbow or of splayed fingers pushing out into the slurry of water and ice and dirt and leaves. Yes, the first autumn leaves. Standing by the pool gives me a good crisp feeling that turns to chill as soon as I turn my back. But I can't help going out there. My feet stay cold for hours afterward and I promise myself I will not go out again. When Ava and the boys come, I can't keep them away from the pool. It's afternoon. No chance of them seeing anything. But still I feel protective when, in the course of our picking leaves out of the fibers in front, we move closer and closer to the side gate. And the tallest boy, the one with pumpkin-colored hair, Peers over and says, no way, the boys aren't all ours. One or two are friends, neighbor boys, and one or two are Ava's, but I can't say which. As we circle the edge, they say they could clean it, for pay of course, and then they say even for free. They argue amongst themselves about whether to consider cleaning it for free. Then they whine in unison to be allowed. And if they could be allowed to clean it, they could be over here all the time swimming. And I would not have to be so lonely, they say. Ava wanders off when it's clear I will not budge on this. The pool stays as it is. If it freezes and cracks, just as well. Two more of the boys follow after her. But one stays. He comes close. Your house is what you have when you're old, isn't it? It's how you get other old people to come over and think you're cool. I'm struck how much he looks like my husband then. The feature's just the same, but more perfect. More smug, if that's possible. I wasn't always as popular as I am now, he says. Something in his voice tells me he feels very noble just now. He lays a hand on my back would lay it on my shoulder if it reached. Leaves rustle all around, and the cool dusty smell of autumn swirls around in my hair. I used to be unpopular, actually, but then I made one good friend who had the courage to be real with me and tell me what I needed to do. Bright white teeth barely show out the corners of a thin sneer. Would you like me to be honest with you? He says. But just then, Eva calls out. She and the other boys are approaching the gray SUV parked on the street. They're far away, tiny, faceless. Would you? I look down. The ground is thick with leaves now orange and pink and brown and glossy yellow. Graying grass pokes through in some places still, but the truth is that, even here in the back, the ruddy pelt has made inroads. The thatches sticking out between the leaves are as likely as not to be pink. When the green kitchen rug came, the kitchen was so distant. I placed the return label on the package, and set it back in the mailbox. I will furnish the house within reason he'd said, but I had no reasonable needs. Did you know, for example, that you can dry off the rain just as well with a wash towel as with a bath towel? It doesn't get any wetter than the bath towel would get. What I came with was more than enough. My phone, my sofa, a suitcase of clothes, a basket piled with washcloths and cosmetics, He'd offered things from his garage and basement, in case I needed time to decide on a scheme, but I'd refused. I had little enough use for anything except the phone, and the beloved sofa that still sat in front of the fireplace where he'd left it. A curvy-cut velvet thing that was my bed and chair and table. My protector, my fort, my cave. It was a right piece for a mansion, the spills and gloss of sweat, and even the sunken springs being a bit gothic somehow and not out of place. Its pattern red as paisley or coleus leaves, and though its threads had many colors, from a distance it read as red as the pelt beyond the doors. That time I dreamed of the doors and climbing the stairs up became the ramp when I came to the top, and my husband asked whether I'd locked the doors. That wasn't the end of the dream. I doubted myself and turned back, down a different staircase. Of course, to check the doors, which turned out to be an arduous task. Because to check the outer ones, I had to unlock layer on layer of inner ones and then check each layer in order. An arduous task, but I finished and, blood pulsing in my head, set off to find the back staircase and finally get upstairs to sleep. I caught, though, a tuft of red just inside the first porch. I unlocked the door, and the draft blew the thing off to the right into shadow. I followed, and of course I found a gap in the wall. Unfinished rooms leading off the porch, and more rooms beyond those filled with filth and the sounds and smells of distant rain. And finally, at the end of the stupid labyrinth, a wall missing, and the water barreling down on red, red grass. So there was no way to lock the house after all, and whatever horrible thing that would come would come. Great terror and gasping. In the dream, I think I was a caricature of myself before all of this. Striving and stress-driven. Always afraid of what's outside. I don't have that kind of dread any longer. And it turns out that one needs a little dread to make a home. A little dread. A little projecting into the future and into memory. Without it, one cannot imagine which furnishings or which tasteful wall coverings are needed. One can't desire to recreate tender moments with the kin, or anything like that. A kitchen's built on dread. A luxurious bathroom. Are you kidding? Absolute dread. I wonder... Does your husband notice there are no charges on his cards except your food deliveries? That is what you're saying, unless we're wrong. You've done nothing to furnish the house. You've done nothing all this time. Maybe he's so flush he hasn't been looking at statements. Sure, or charging so much of his own that he thinks it's both of ours. I decided some time ago to stop wondering. I spend more time outside now, sleep less. My waking is as relaxing and restorative as sleep. I've depended on the sofa so much for so long now, and loved it in my way. I decide to set it free soon. I will drag it beyond the lawn for someone to take. But no, the time to think about that will be when I'm dragging it, not now. The time to think about food will be when the delivery car comes. Not now. For now, I lay back in the sumptuous pile, admiring rows of black trunks still stuck like nails into the burned hill, the fallen ones like Roman numerals here and there. Birds go over. Every one of them, even the occasional black one, is red-breasted by the glow. I think of times my husband drove past a yard with too many seasonal decorations or with a cardboard cutout of an old woman leaning over to weed or a tire painted white with flowers inside a gnome or birdbath even a birdbath he'd say that's real Maxim Betty after the neighbors who lived across the street when he was a boy they took joy in garden kitsch And for that, they'd been a joke with him all of his life. If he drove past this house? And who knows? Maybe he does drive past. Of course he does. It's what he says. I know it. I can decide to stop knowing it, though. So I do. I think that if I could open the house to the street, if I could unfold it to show what's inside... The neighbors would surely come to help. They'd bring their cast-off things in all their hoarded cheer. Casseroles. As a house is now, still enfolded, anything could be behind the porches. I wonder what they imagine inside, and then decide to stop wondering. It works. I decide whatever I want, and it's so. I roll onto my belly so I can run my fingers through the grass. A spiky fungus catches at a hangnail, and I flick it off. The flowers do not bloom here. In fact, their buds have disappeared. Their tough little stems make U-turns back down. I can see them growing through the grass to the grid layer and through the clay fibers of the base through dead lawn, through soil, through gravel. They shuttle through concrete and wood and burst into bloom in a forgotten cellar far below, where no one but I can see them.
0: Today's author was Christy Nogle, with her story, The Pelt, told by Mary Murphy. To find out more about Christy and Mary, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. Our lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Viteza of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, our art director and executive producer. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. That's me. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios. All rights reserved.